A boat moored in the deep shade, under a weeping willow, in the bend of a river. As the light fades, so does the boat, with its willow, with its river. Only memory remains of the lovers in the bottom of the boat, moored to each other. They, too, gone on. I was going to ask you a question about your poetry. Go right ahead. Um, every time I read your poems, I find something else I had not noticed before, even though it was there all the while. And one big image that... What that, makes you think it was there all the while? Well, I never <laughs> noticed it before. But it always seems to be there. You start with particulars in many of your poems and end up with something vast, like a eternity or a great panorama. And it seems in almost everything from the little dog who's walking along the street who then becomes the dog beside a great horn that blasts out to the entire universe. The victor, the victor. To your mother poem about the particulars of your mother in the car and father. And then it ends again with a, 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 a word like eternity, something of that sort. Oh, it's the Victor record dog yeah, listening yeah, yeah. to the horn. But the last line of it is... Uh, and then there's the, at the Golden Gate, single plover, just a single plover. And then at the end, a rose's skull into eternity mm -hmm. of the Golden Gate Bridge. The and skull is a play on S-C-U-L-L. S-C-U-L-L? S-C-U-L-L, which is the name for a rowing, yeah. a, a rowing skull. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a, obviously a play on S-K. At the Golden Gate. At the Golden Gate, a single plover far at sea wings across the horizon. A single rower, almost out of sight, rows his skull into eternity. And I take a Buddha crystal in my hand and begin becoming pure light. You know, a rowing his skull into eternity, S-K-U-L-L. It reminds me of the uh, Hieronymus Bosch in the Garden of Delights where the, you, you have images like that, yeah. a man rowing a, a human skull. Yeah, and emerging from one. Uh -huh. And in this, see the little poem about uh, driving a cardboard automobile without a license that ends uh, with... And I knew in the back seat of their eternity, reaching out to embrace them. Again, that image is repeated again and again in very interesting ways. I don't know, that was just a side observation. But we're not supposed to be talking about eternity today, I think. <laughs> Get down to the particulars. But this is a good example of what Eric was talking about. It, it, the poem drifts off into eternity. Like, this is San Francisco in eternity. Yeah, the North Beach poem. It, it begins um, with something rather specific, corkless houses uh, away above a harbor full of corkless houses, and you go on and then find the last one, the last line, stand out the bright streamers to kingdom come. Again, it goes, even that f funny little children's poem almost about the bird that sings and the cat that eats the bird and the dog that eats the cat, and finally 
they, they each get, uh, they, they swallow this beautiful thing of the, of the song and they become beautiful and this beauty continues to get larger and larger until the whole universe wants to devour this song. Well, that was a really a, a Jacques Prévert influenced poem. That was a type of poem that the French poet Jacques Prévert always wrote. Oh, really? Whom I translated when I was a student at the, Sor at the Sorbonne. Not to say the least about a little, tiny little old tsunami that uh, begins in Los Angeles and begins to cover oh. not only Los Angeles, <laughs> but the western United States and the middle w of the United States and finally almost the entire Earth. <laughs> well, from here to eternity. above a harbor full of caulkless houses, among the Charlie Noble chimney pots of a rooftop rigged with clotheslines, a woman paces up sails upon the wind, hanging out her morning sheets with wooden pins. Oh, lovely mammal, her nearly naked breasts throw taut shadows as she stretches up to hang at last the last of her so whitewashed sins. But it is wetly amorous and winds itself about her, clinging to her skin, so caught with arms upraised. She tosses back her head in voiceless laughter and in choiceless gesture then shakes out gold hair. While in the reachless seascape spaces between the blown white shrouds, stand out the bright steamers to kingdom come. Some of those North Beach rooftops, the old North Beach rooftops were rigged like on the deck of a ship with all these clotheslines. I have this term, chimney pots. Charlie, Dom Char Charlie Noble was what they called the uh, air vents on, uh, on ships, like on merchant ships, sort of a little uh, hooded vent from below decks with a little hat on it, which was known as a Charlie Noble. And you'd have these same kind of air vents on the roofs of houses. 
That theme is so prevalent here in San Francisco. I mean, almost everywhere you live, wherever you go, you have this view of this bay that leads out under the Golden Gate Bridge. I know. Out into this, out into the ocean. San Francisco, it's an old uh, Indian myth going all the way back several centuries of San Francisco as an island. So we're surrounded by water on three sides and uh, with the melting of the icebergs, the water will rise just a few feet or even a foot or two and it'll flood over the remaining fourth side, the very low-lying landmass between San Francisco and the what's known as the San Francisco Peninsula. And then San Francisco will be an island again. And there was always an island mentality. And when I arrived in San Francisco uh, by ferry from Oakland, having come on the train across the continent. I had the feeling that the citizens really had this island mentality. And uh, they were sort of like Neapolitans who considered themselves Neapolitans first and Italians second. So I, in 1950, I felt San Franciscans felt they were San Franciscans first and then only second, secondarily uh, members of the United States. And so uh, we're sort of a, an off-lying island, not really part of the continent. This is an image you used in one of the poems, I forget which one it was, about the island. What poem was that? That, that it has an island consciousness, you were saying. But it looked like something more like a ship in the early days when there weren't so many skyscrapers. San Francisco had this appearance of white stacks Oh yes, Whoa. it was when I came uh, on the ferry from Oakland, San Francisco was like a Mediterranean city, uh, small white buildings, uh, no skyscrapers, just a few high-rises, maybe only 12, 14 stories, something like that, but all white, and uh, it was like seeing a Tunis from the sea, uh, really a Mediterranean-looking uh, provincial town. shipped out from San Francisco a couple of times before I got a job. Well, when were you on a merchant ship? Oh, I was in the first year of the war, the winter of 41-42, I was on the uh, old Liberty ships on convoys to Europe. Uh, one New York to Belfast, 28 days. We zigzagged all over the ocean, so our forward motion was maybe not more than eight or ten knots because we were zigzagging. And uh, so it took forever to get there, and there's ice on the rigging, and I was on the, uh, on the armed guard crew manning the uh, anti-aircraft gun on the bow of the Liberty ship. Uh, we made 
several convoys across the Atlantic. Uh, and the first one I was on, about half the convoy was torpedoed. Only about half the ships made it across. Yeah, I know. That's when I was getting a ship. I, they, when the Navy assigned us to merchant ships, they gave us what are called fouled weather gear, and I had a mountain of it waiting for me when I got to the dock, waiting to get the, uh, the merchant ship. Yeah. But it turned out the ship went back and forth to Brazil, so I never needed oh. it, but it was on the ship, and I had all this fouled weather gear with me. But those were dangerous days for merchant ships there. Yeah, they were. And, uh, they broke in half, too, every once in a while, didn't they? They didn't need an enemy to help. Well, those Liberty ships were very thin skin, very yeah. thin hull. Like, I don't know what it was, an eighth of an inch steel? Or... Yeah. Were they like the uh, Jeremiah O'Brien? Yeah, that's why they call them tin cans. Well, the tin cans are what they call the destroyers, actually. Yeah. Is the, uh, the O'Brien, the Jeremiah O'Brien, that kind of a ship? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we should go over and see it someday. Yachts in sun, the yachts, the white yachts, with their white sails and sunlight, catching the wind and heeling over, all together racing now for the white boy, to tack about, to come about beyond it, and then come running in before the spanking wind, white spinnakers billowing off Fort Mason, San Francisco, where once drowned down an Alcatraz con escaping whose bones today are sand 50 fathoms down, still imprisoned now in the glass of the sea as the so skillful yachts freely pass over. The so skillful yachts freely pass over is a ripoff from a famous poem by William Carlos Williams. His line, I believe, is, and the yachts skillfully pass over. That was really a total rip-off on my part. Well, art is built on art, and uh, you've ripped off quite a number of poems. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> well, the, we, I was looking at So one. did Picasso. Well, so did, uh, I presume, Shakespeare and every major poet. So did T.S. Eliot, who, who even said, I summarized the, he said... I forget who was talking about uh, the four quartets or the wasteland. He said, summarizing the past by theft and illusion. Not illusion, but A-L-L. -L. Well, the uh, outreaching sea that we discussed a long time ago is another example. You know, the, the, uh, the poem uh, tonight at the, at the great old beach hotel, it begins... And then at the end, and I keep, you see it goes, uh, uh, over abandoned casinos, pleasure domes, and ragtime utopias, narco corridas, and stolen ajidos, ajidos, all to the sound of the ocean's long withdrawing roar. And you quote it, that's from Matthew Arnold. Yes. But Matthew Arnold <laughs> took it from Sophocles. Dover Beach. Dover Beach. But in the same poem... Uh, Arnold quotes 
Well, there's the Sophocles. Lines. Oh, yeah, Sophocles long Sophocles, ago yes. by the Aegean. That's right, that's right. That the uh, uh, low he has fallen at the end of uh, Oedipus, and around great storms and the outreaching sea. And earlier in the poem, he refers to Sophocles. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean, and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. Well, the, if it comes to the end of Oedipus, it has, it, it has found its rightful place. Count no man's life as gain, ere the whole tale be told, and darkness find him without mm. pain. But that's uh, Gilbert Murray. Mm. The old sailors on the green riverbank, age late fifties. I am beginning to remind myself of my great uncle Desir in the Virgin Islands. On a St. Thomas back beach, he lived when I last saw him in a small shack under the palms, eighty years old, straight as a Viking, where the Danes once landed. He stood looking out over the flat sea, blue eyes are gray with a sea in them, salt upon his lashes. We were always sea wanderers, no salt here now by the great river in the high desert range. Old sailors stranded, the steelhead, they too lost without it, leap up and die. Beautiful? Yeah. Here I was on the, on the oh. deck in my sailor suit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and these are other sailors on Where the boat. Where is this Rio? It's Corcovado, yeah. Coco uh, who? Corcovado. Yeah, I, there's some on the other side. I'm going to show you. Is that you too? <laughs> That's the captain, Captain Maguire. He was our Irish captain who hated the British so much. He didn't want me to, to fly the British ensign when we entered the port of Spain because... Most of those merchant marine captains, they didn't trust electronic navigation. You had to get up there with your sextant. You had to be up there and take star sights at night. Yeah. He had a sextant that was as old as the hills. We had the first electronic navigation, but this merchant marine skipper on one freighter I was on wouldn't use it. He, he didn't trust it at all. <laughs> The captain's sextant was as old as any that I'd ever seen. With it, he was able to make the best sights in the convoy. And if there was a mistake, in, uh, if his was not the way the others were, we eventually would get a call from the, from the Commodore saying ours was correct. It was an amazing little instrument, and he taught me how to use it. Here it is, you see? Yeah. The sextant. Yeah, I used it. So I was a navigator on a troop transport the last in the Pacific, the last year of the... Did you learn? Second World War. Did you learn uh, 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 how to take Oh, yeah, we did nothing but celestial navigation because the captain didn't like... We had the first, uh, what was it called? Um, the first electronic navigation, but he wouldn't use it. We went south of the equator to Majuro at one point. And uh, I had learned my stars in the in, in uh, the planetarium at, in Chicago where I was in midshipman school. And 
I'd never been south of the border, and and I looked up at the heavens. The captain was on my back trying to get me to get a star sight, and I didn't recognize a single constellation or navigational star in the whole sky. <laughs> and uh, so I finally recognized the Southern Cross from having seen it in the planetarium. And I did get some kind of fix, but not much. And the big competition with, with the other ships in the, in the convoy was to get your ETA the most exact, the estimated time of arrival at the next port. So you predicted a day or several days in advance the ETA of arrival, say, in Honolulu. Once we were steaming from Panama Canal to Honolulu, and I put an ETA down there, which happened to be within the, just when the minute rolled around, when I said they were going to sight Honolulu, the lookout in the crow's nest sings out, Diamond Head on the port bow. <laughs> well, you see, you missed your right avocation. Well, I was close, you know. I When I came to San Francisco, I didn't have a job. I, I looked into the Merchant Marine. I went to the Maritime Academy. I thought I could get a job teaching navigation there, but I don't know. I didn't have the... I didn't know anybody. You had to have some kind of... intro to get get into it. The Green Street Mortuary Marching Band, well, whenever the, the Green Street Mortuary Marching Band came out of Green Street and headed down Columbus Avenue with, in the funeral parade, I always thought, well, I've got to write a poem about that, so I finally did. Who do they play for? Do they play for any? They play for the dead. I know, for, for do, the, do you have to be the uh, you elected have, dead? or You have to be dead to get the Green Street Mortuary Marching Band. And but rich, or are they... Are they rich? You have to be rich to hire them. Oh, no, I don't think it's outrageous. But uh, quite often it's, it seems it's some perhaps rich Chinese patriarch. The biggest funerals are often these days great Chinese patriarchs with long lines of limousines following afterward. Now, where is that poem in here?
it really happened. The Green Street Mortuary Marching Band marches right down Green Street and turns into Columbus Avenue where all the cafe sitters at the sidewalk cafe tables sit talking and laughing and looking right through it as if it happened every day in little old wooden North Beach, San Francisco, but at the same time feeling thrilled by the stirring sound of the gallant marching band as if it were celebrating life and never heard of death. And right behind it comes the open hearse with the closed casket and the big framed picture under glass propped up showing the patriarch who has just croaked. And now all seven members of the Green Street Mortuary Marching Band with a faded gold braid on their beat-up captain's hats raise their bent axes and start blowing all more or less together and out comes this onward Christian soldiers like you heard it once upon a time only much slower with a dead beat. And now you see all the relatives behind the closed glass windows of the long black cars. And their faces are all shiny, like they've been weeping with washcloths, and all super serious, like as if the bottom had just dropped out of their private markets. And there's the widow all in weeds, and the sister with the bent frame, and the mad brother who never got through school and Uncle Louie with a wig. And there they all are, assembled together and facing each other, maybe for the first time in a long time. But their masks and public faces are still in place as they face outward behind the traveling corpse up ahead. And oompa, oompa goes the band very slow with the trombones and the tuba and the trumpet and the big bass drum and the corpse hears nothing, or everything. And it's a glorious autumn day in old North Beach. If only he could have lived to see it, only we wouldn't have had the band, who half an hour later can be seen struggling back silent along the sidewalks, looking like hungover, broken down Irish bartenders, dying for a drink or a last hurrah. In this collection, it's followed by the poem called Bounces Bar. It's <laughs> oh, yeah. Which leads well, we right should, into it. We should do that one. You think? You got that there? Yes, right here. Bounces Bar. Now, this was a real bar. I don't think it exists anymore. It was just, was it? just uh, a few paces off the Embarcadero on the San Francisco waterfront. Past the bouncer's bar tonight, in its old leaning building just off the Embarcadero. Lots of stiffs in there, still nursing their beers and staring at the wall. It was that kind of place, long on atmosphere and short on talk. Even the bartender kept silent, having long ago given up bar banter. There was no happy hour in here, even in the bad old days. Nothing relieved the gloom 
on days like this. The swinging door rarely swung. The bums crept in out of the sun. Only the jukebox once in a while showed signs of life. Now and then letting out late at night an old broken moan about a dude leaving his wife and how she'd done him wrong for a song while an old head in a corner mumbles and sings along and falls out into the night with its pathless starry sky and raises a fist to those black heavens and lets out a bloody cry. Bounces bars abound around city lights. The old specs and uh, Tosca once in a while. If I visited any bar, it would be Vesuvio's next to City Lights bookstore, which is still going strong. Was Vesuvio's there before City Lights? Oh, Henri Lenoir was a German-speaking, Swiss-born Bohemian, uh, the last one of the last of the real Bohemians. His name wasn't uh, Henri Lenoir when he came to this country. He came in about 1928, and he drove across the country with a friend, and they were going to become movie stars in Hollywood. But before they reached Hollywood, the great crash came in 1929. And after a year, they hadn't been able to get a job. And so uh, his visa expired, and in those days, before there was any electronic surveillance of innocent citizenry, as there is today, the... Uh, the immigration officer said, well, why don't you just change your name and disappear? Which he did. And he changed his name to Henri Lenoir. It had been, I think, Henry Ireland. But before that, I actually have a copy of his a Xerox of his passport. It was a German name from a German-speaking part of Switzerland. And uh, he was uh, had become French by adopting the name, and he spoke some French. But I tried to engage him in conversation mostly. He really didn't get very far in French. Uh, he'd forgotten it since his childhood. Of course, in Switzerland, they usually are polylingual. But anyway, he uh, came to San Francisco, and he... Uh, uh, made a living by, according to him, this is all his story, including how he came to L.A. and changed his name. He, according to him, he made a living by selling silk stockings to the old dancing girls and madams in the old international settlement in North Beach, which were, this was in the uh, 30s and 40s, there were old-style burlesque houses uh, much like East Coast burlesque houses. And um, that's how he made a living. And then he started hanging paintings in a bar near the present Transamerica Pyramid, which uh, this is when the old Montgomery building was still the center for artists, which was where the Transamerica building is now. And across the street was a bar, I think it was called the Iron Pot, 
where Henri uh, started hanging paintings for the owner of the bar, and he got known for hanging local artists' paintings. So then he moved up the street to where Specs is, going up Columbus Avenue north, and he started in what's now Specs. Was, the address was 12 Adler Place, and that became the name of the bar, 12 Adler. And then he went across the street after, I don't know how long, couple of years and started Vesuvio's, maybe around 1950, I'm not sure, because I didn't arrive in town till 51. And so then he, he lived in the building where City Lights Bookstore is, and he lived in the top floor there until he died in, in the late, or late 1980s or early 1990s, I forget. Uh, still wearing his beret. I can see him now. I saw him many times. Did uh, did you start City Lights in the same location it is now, or did you start it elsewhere? No, oh, same location, but it was started by... I had a partner originally, Peter Dean Martin, who was uh, the, the son of Carlo Tresca, who was an Italian anarchist assassinated on the streets of New York, perhaps by the Mafia, I think in the early 1940s. And so we had this anarchist uh, background, anarchist uh, slant right from the beginning. Um, and we had actually, some of the first publications we sold were two Italian anarchist newspapers in Italian and at that time, North Beach was populated by like 90% Italians. And among the people who would buy the Italian anarchist newspaper were the, the guys on the, who were the scavengers on the garbage truck. I remember one guy wearing a derby and baggy pants would rush in off the garbage truck and get his copy of Umanita Nova or uh, La Dunata was the other one. And uh, we uh, had that newspaper for years, those two newspapers for years, until I think both of them went out of existence, maybe in the 60s. But, uh, so uh, the bookstore was uh, always in the same location, 261 Columbus Avenue. And uh, it was a building built by the French. The French family owned the land where the where the building is all the way back in, in, into the 1880s. And uh, that after the earthquake in 1906, the original building was destroyed and they built, in 1907, the building was supposed to be one of the first earthquake-proof buildings, which consisted of some heavy steel cables suspended from roof beams holding up various floors. And that was about, that was the whole retro, retrofit. But anyway, the same French family still owned the building when we moved in, in the 19, in 1953 is when we started. And we paid the rent to uh, uh, the heirs in southern France and they finally moved to this country, but uh, 
but it's now a, a, a historical. What what is its status? Uh, it's got historical landmark sta status now, yeah. and it's been uh, retrofitted the way it's done today. That means nobody can take it away. Seismic retrofit. And earthquakes are, only, uh, are banned from the premises. Only, only earthquakes can take it away. I understand there's a river that flows underneath it. Is that true? It's more like a fountain, which is... There's a stream, a spring. There's a spring underneath the, the building, which had to be heavily cemented when the building was built. Does it still flow? It's, well, it's damp in certain corners down there. It's like the uh, it, the, the eternal <laughs> fountain of eternal youth, or whatever. Oh, so you draw upon this water for special purposes? Oh yeah, right. When we first finally got into the basement of the building, it was occupied by a Chinese electrician. It was full of Chinese artifacts and. The Chinese dragon, which was used in the annual Chinese New Year parade, was stored there. So once a year, the Chinese dragon would issue out of the side door into what's now Kerouac Alley. Listen, today is the year of the snake, isn't it? That is if Chinese you're, New Year. That is if you're Asian, that's the year of the snake. Yeah. What does it mean? What does it mean, the year of the snake? Yes, but in the Christian mythology, the snake is a, an evil being. So this is a big clash with Asian philosophy, isn't it? Lawrence wrote a poem about the Chinese snake. Oh yes, it was the Chinese dragon. I forgot my reading glasses, but that's all right. I, I seem to be working all right here. The, the, the great Chinese dragon. The great Chinese dragon, which is the greatest dragon in all the world and which once upon a time was towed across the Pacific by a crew of coolies rowing in an open boat, was the first real live dragon ever actually to reach these shores. And the great Chinese dragon passing through the Golden Gate, sprouting streams of water like a string of fireboats, then broke loose somewhere near China camp, gulped down a hundred Chinese seamen and forthwith ate up all the shrimp in San Francisco Bay. And the great Chinese dragon was therefore forever after confined in a Chinatown basement and never allowed out except for Chinese New Year's parades and other un-American demonstrations, paternally watched over by those benevolent men in blue who represent, represent our, our more advanced, advanced civilization, civilization which has reached such a high state of democracy as to allow even a few barbarians to carry on their quaint native customs in our midst. And thus, the great Chinese dragon, which is the greatest dragon in all the world, now can only be seen creeping out of an Adler Alley cellar like a worm out of a hole sometime during the second week in February every year, 
when it sorties out of hibernation in its Chinese storeroom, pushed from behind by a band of 43 Chinese electricians and technicians who stuff its peristaltic accordion body up through a sidewalk delivery entrance. And first, the swaying snout appears, and then the eyes at ground level, feeling along the curb, and then the head itself, casting about and swaying and heaving finally up to the corner of Grant Avenue itself where a huge paper sign proclaims the world's largest Chinatown. And the great Chinese dragon's jaws, wired permanently agape as if by a demented dentist to display the cadmium teeth as the hungry head heaves out into Grant Avenue, right under the sign and raising itself with a great snort of fire, suddenly proclaims the official firecracker start of the Chinese New Year. And the light bulb eyes lighting up and popping out uncoiled wire springs, and the body stretching and rocking further and further around the corner and down Grant Avenue like a caterpillar roller coaster with the eyes sprung out and waving in the air like the blind feelers of some mechanical praying mantis, and the eyes blinking on and off with Chinese red pupils and tiny bamboo blind eyelids going up and down. And still the tail of the dragon in the Adler Alley cellar, uncoiling and unwinding out into the street with the 43 Chinese technicians still stuffing the dragon out the hole in the sidewalk and the head of the dragon now three blocks away in the middle of the parade of fancy floats presided over by Chinese virgins. And here comes the St. Mary's Chinese Girls Drum Corps and here come 16 white men in pith helmets beating big bass drums representing the Order of the Moose. And here comes a gang of happy car salesmen disguised as Islam Shriners. And here comes a chapter of the Order of Improved Red Men. And here comes a cordon of motorcycle cops in crash helmets with radios going followed by a small papier-mâché lion fed with Neko wafers and run by two guys left over from a 1010 festival, which in turn is followed by the great Chinese dragon itself gooking over balconies as it comes. And the great Chinese dragon has eaten a hundred humans and their legs pop out of his underside and are his walking legs, which are not mentioned in the official printed program in which he is written up as the great golden dragon, made in Hong Kong to the specifications of the Chinese Chamber of Commerce, and he represents the force and mystery of life, and his head sways in the sky between the balconies as he comes, followed by six Chinese Boy Scouts wearing keds and carrying strings of batteries that light up the dragon like a nighttime freeway. He has lain all winter among a heap of collapsed paper lanterns and green rubber lizards and ivory back scratchers with the iron sidewalk doors closed over his head. But he has now sprung up with the first sign of spring, like the force of life itself, and his head sways in the sky and gooks in green windows as he comes. 
and he is a monster with the head of a dog and the body of a serpent risen yearly out of the sea to devour a virgin, thrown from a cliff to appease him. And he is a young man, handsome and drunk, ogling the girls. And he has high ideals and a hundred sports shoes. And he says no to mother. And he is a big red table the world will never tilt. And he has big eyes everywhere through which he sees all womankind milk-white and dove-breasted. And he will eat their water flowers. For he is the cat with future feet, wearing kids. And he eats cake out of pastry windows, and is hungrier, and more potent, and more powerful, and more omnivorous than the papier-mâché lion run by two guys. And he is the great earthworm of lucky life filled with flowing Chinese semen, and he considers his own and our existence in its most profound sense as he comes, and he has no Christian answer to the existential question even as he sees the spiritual everywhere translucent in the material world. And he does not want to escape the responsibility of being a dragon, or the consequences of his long horny tail still buried in the basement. But the blue citizens on their talking cycles think that he wants to escape, and at all costs he must not be allowed to escape because the great Chinese dragon is the greatest potential dragon in all the world. And if allowed to escape from Chinatown, might gallop away up their new freeway at the Broadway entrance, mistaking it for a great wall of China or some other barbarian barrier, and so go careening along it, chewing up stanchions and signposts and, and belching forth some strange disintegrating medium which might melt down the great concrete walls of America. And they are afraid of how far the great Chinese dragon might really go, starting from San Francisco. And so they have secretly and securely tied down the very end of his tail in its hole, so that this great pulsing phallus of life at the very end of its parade, at the very end of Chinatown, gives one wild orgasm of a shudder and rolls over fainting in the bright night street, since even for a dragon, every orgasm is a little death. And then the great Chinese dragon starts silently shrinking and shriveling up and drawing back and back and back to its first cave and the soft silk skin wrinkles up and shrinks and shrinks on its sprung bamboo bones and the handsome dejected head hangs down like a defeated prize fighters and so is stuffed down again at last into its private place and the cellar sidewalk doors press down again over the great wilted head with one small hole of an eye blinking still through the gratings of the metal doors as the great Chinese dragon gives one last convulsive earthquake shake and rolls over dead dog to wait another white year for the final coming and the final sowing of his oats and teeth. And is the uh, dragon still in the cellar? No, no, it's, they got a new dragon now. 
much more fancy. And I don't know where they keep it. Well, that's history. <laughs> <laughs> Things don't end where they began. Long boats sail into the night. 